So, this evening I do have a suggestion for the Dhamma talk this evening. And for this evening, it's instead of just about general life, this is actually much more focused on some Buddhist teachings and how they can apply to our lives. So in particular, someone sent an email to our admin people, which is great, a suggestion for this talk. They said that sometimes they're confused about especially the Buddhist teaching of you know trying to begin, like on an eightfold path, you begin with right view, or what about the usual way we say practicing a sila samadhi panya, which means virtue, meditation, peace, and wisdom. Or sometimes in, I remember this was quite common in the Thai tradition, to do dana, which is generosity, and then sila, again virtue, and bhavana, the development of the mind and the body. So what is actually the right way of um, beginning a spiritual path? Do you have to start from right view before you can start keeping precepts? Do you have to be generous first of all before you can even start becoming a Buddhist and keeping precepts? How does it all work together? And even though that we say those things and you can read those things, the reality is that in the spiritual life, you can start from anywhere, and anywhere where you feel you get some inspiration and some peace. And of course, I often talk about my own life because that's what I'm most close to. That's what I can remember very clearly and talk about this with honesty, because it's no direct experience. When I was only 16, that was the point, just before my father died, I realized that spirituality, in those days we called it religion, was an important factor of life. It wasn't just about being smart at school, or being wealthy, or being poor, or being fit. It's actually just what goes on inside of you. I remember that was my first time of spiritual interest was when I was only 16. Yeah, I was interested in girls, but that was more than that. And so for those of you who are parents and have children, never underestimate a 15 or 16 year old child's interest in what this world is all about and why this world is and how to navigate you know, things like possessions and relationships and health in a way which can give life meaning and purpose. You know, what, what you should be doing, why should you be going to school? What's the purpose of learning? What should you be learning? How should you be relating to everything? And so many times kids are interested, you know, in meaning in the spirituality of their life, and that's what I was interested in. I did come from a poor home. And when I did get my first school prize, 
I mean, I don't know if they still do these prize givings at schools, but I was just so chuffed, so delighted. I got my first school prize, and what was it? Just go to a bookshop and get a book, and that'll be presented on, to you on your prize day. I said, well, what book should I get? It's the first time I did this. They said, it was on maths. That was my speciality. So go and get a book on maths. And I went to the bookshop and I looked at those maths books. No way <laughs> was I going to waste my first school prize on a book about mathematics. I can get that from the library. So this was in London, had these really big, good bookshops. They had everything in those bookshops. It was actually, if any of you know London, Foyle's bookshop in... Uh, was it in Tottenham Court Road. And it had the main place, you know, we had the books on maths, but the opposite side of the road, the annex. And the top story of the annex, like the attic, that was where they had all the interesting books, in my opinion. I was rebellious. And in those days, getting a book on psychology was pretty rebellious. And I also got books on all the religions I could find. Because I thought spirituality is important. I want to find out which particular religion to choose. And to this day, I always call that market research. Why be a Buddhist? Are you sure that's the best path for you? If a Buddhist, what type of Buddhism? Mahayana, Vajrayana, Theravada. If it's Theravada, what type of Theravada? There's Thai, there's Sri Lankan, there's Burmese. Spirituality is quite confusing, but at least I had a choice, and I thought, I make a wise choice. So I got all these books, all paperbacks, which I wasn't supposed to do. And I think <laughs> the one which I actually, I got about six or seven of them, the one I actually gave to the principal to get this, I even forget who it was, to actually present it to me, was the Tibetan Book of the Dead. <laughs> I, now this was in 1967 or something, and I thought, you can't get more rebellious than that in England <laughs> with the title Tibetan Book of the Dead. But <laughs> that's what I got. But I read those things, and of course, it's getting the information first of all, the knowledge would always be the first step. And once you get the knowledge, like people come here and they kind of like it or they don't like it, they get the books, they like it, they don't like it, they go online, and sometimes it really catches you. And that's you know, what caught me to some of the teachings of Buddhism, some of the very ideas of Buddhism. One of the things which I did like, it's not like you had to accept it, it was just a welcoming idea of like rebirth, reincarnation. Even though at that age you couldn't remember your past lives, but it made so much sense to me. Why do you only have one life? It's unfair, isn't it? Even just this week, I went to somebody's house in South Perth, four-year-old kid died, only four years of age. 
So I went there to try and do some chanting and give some nice advice. And fortunately they were Buddhists. And so I could tell them. So I've had so many stories about young kids who died when they were very, very young and they get reborn again. <laughs> and you know that that you know, was your kid from a previous life. They have a second chance. Doesn't that not sound fair to you? To me it often does. Why not? Otherwise it's just so <coughs> unfair, uncompassionate. It's just not right that a four-year-old or six-year-old or seven-year-old kid could just suddenly die and just be gone forever. So when you have an idea of like rebirth, yeah, they die and they come back again. Another chance. And some of the stuff which happens is just so ridiculous. You can, I, I've seen this too many times. You can't put it down to coincidence. This actually happens. And okay, one of those stories I keep telling it of the the Thai lady who whose son died, stillborn, and what she did. I was there at the funeral. I was there when she got pregnant again and gave birth to another kid. What they did was, well, I wasn't even looking at this time, I was talking to somebody else around the coffin. They put a line on the baby's heel, on the dead baby's heel, with a ballpoint pen. Just a straight line. And when they, she got pregnant again and gave birth, that kid has got a birthmark. A line on its heel, just where they put it. It's almost like saying, well, if that's the kid come back again, then you can see the line on the heel. He's got it. And the first kid was called Charlie. The new kid was called Annie. It was a girl. And I often tell the story, because I know there's usually more females come to our Buddhist society on a Friday night than males. So to keep them <laughs> interested, Usually, if you go on a flight on an aircraft, you go to the airport and they find they book too many people on there and they say, um, you know, some of you can't fly today. What does the airline do if they bump you off, as it's called? They offer you a seat on the next available plane and they upgrade you. Maybe <laughs> instead of economy class, they put you in business class or something. So I said, that's what happened to that kid. A boy was upgraded. <laughs> I don't know that, but anyway, became a girl. <laughs> but anyway, when you sort of started getting interested in those ideas, it made a lot of sense to me. And not just that, the idea that even if somebody does die a terrible death, it's never regarded as punishment. The old idea of guilt and punishment, that was too much like controlling somebody. If you don't behave, then you get punished. And that never made sense in any spirituality where kindness was important. And so the compassion which I read about, you know, in you know, Buddhist stories, said there's no need to punish 
anybody, not yourself, nor others. And that was very really fantastic to hear. Because I knew that sometimes, you know, you, you thought you were up for punishment. But I didn't know really what I was doing wrong. I was a young boy just learning. Learning about life. How are you really competent enough? Or when are you competent enough to really kind of deserve a punishment? Because you do something wrong. Sometimes you're in a difficult situation. You don't know, know what you're supposed to do. You give it a try and sometimes, you know, make a mistake. Instead of punishment, it should always be forgiveness and learning. And that's actually one of the things when I was a school teacher. You can never punish a kid. Instead, you understand what they did that for. They just didn't know. They thought it was fun. They made a mistake. And you learn that in life. Your kid makes a mistake. If you punish them, how does that feel? If you were punished by your parents, how did it feel? These were people you loved and cared for. You expected them to care for you, not hit you. When you get married, have a relationship. What's it like when one of those partners feel that you know, you've, you've betrayed them? Is it right that they punish you? I can never, honestly, I'm being honest, I can never get the benefit of punishment. It just makes you scared. And oftentimes the people just use that as a, a threat to control you. You never learn, but you live your life afraid. And that's not a life to live at all. So instead of punishment, it's all learning. That's how we grow. And those are little things, those ideas, where do they fit in to right view or to, you know, bhavana or, or generosity? After a while, why are you generous? It should never be forced on you. That's why there's never any um, signs in this room here that you, to enter this room you must give a donation. Sometimes, I'm just joking, so you know it's my character. Sometimes people say, how much is it, is it to, to get in? I say, nothing. But you have to pay to get out. <laughs> that would be much more effective if you didn't want to raise money. Lock all the doors, give a really boring talk for a couple of hours. And if you really wanted to get out, you have to pay money. <laughs> we don't do stuff like that. What was it? Oh, I still remember this telephone call, a Polish lady, and saying, uh, are you giving a talk tonight? And I said, yes. How much do you charge? And I said, nothing. And she said, look, you don't understand me. How many dollars and cents do you have to pay to get in? I said, nothing. And then she got really angry and said, Listen, how much do I have to cough up for your talk? And I said, Nothing. It's all for free. You've seen that yourself. We don't take your name and your details and send you demanding notes next time. We don't send a couple of really big guys 
up to you. She walked to the car and said, you didn't put any donations in the box this evening. We don't intimidate at all. But anyway, what she said afterwards was really interesting. She paused and said, well, what do you guys get out of this then? And that was a really good question. What do I get out of giving talks here on a Friday night? What do the, the people like Bill, who looks after you know, these events and makes sure everything's in a good place, what do the people who do the IT get out of this? What do all the volunteers get out of this? The volunteers don't get paid. I don't get paid. Sometimes I think I'm exploited. <laughs> no, I'm not. Because you do this for joy and happiness. You know, we were just talking on the last week about visas for monks. And we had a big problem a couple of years ago because anyone, if you want to get a monk or a nun into Australia from overseas, the government wanted to make sure you're not exploiting them. So they had one of the requirements was a minimum salary level. And if you didn't meet the minimum salary level, which was about the level for a young doctor with a family. And they said, well, monks, you know, we don't have a family. What about the place you stay? Yeah, I have a cave. How much is that worth? <laughs> what about your food? We only eat just once a day or twice a day. And even exaggerating how much that is worth, there's no way in the world we can put a monetary value on all the services we get from our Buddhist society, which is worth much at all. So we didn't qualify for a visa. But then I must admit, this I managed to score a meeting with the Minister of Immigration at that time. It was just Gareth Evans at that time. And then I explained the problem to him. He said, this is what's stopping us getting visas. He said, oh, solution's simple. As long as you, Ajahn Brahm, as a spiritual director of the BSWA, you can write down and promise that any visiting monks or nuns won't get less than you get, then I can sign off on it. What do you mean less? I don't get anything. They can't get less than that. <laughs> exactly, he said. <laughs> and that became a memorandum of understanding for many years while he was still immigration minister, I just said, this monk who is coming into Australia won't get less than I'm being paid by the BSWA. <laughs> but you can't get... And that's a beautiful solution. But anyway, what do we get out of this? There's actually more to life than money. You get this joy, this happiness. That's why I wouldn't give this up for the world. I keep on coming here every Friday as much as I can, while you teach retreats, while you go overseas and teach. You get so much happiness out of sharing all the stuff which you have learnt, which I have learnt, and making your life much more meaningful and enjoyable, and putting problems, real problems, in perspective, so you don't need to get depressed. The little things I've just been teaching, in the meditation, how to be healthy.
they work. And it's amazing. Every year, just last, about 10 days ago, when he went to Solaris Cancer Care, it was over in Cottesloe, to teach a full house about what to do, you know, when you get cancer. Or when you have somebody else who has cancer, how to deal with it. And every year I go there. And I go there and just give a talk and they come to monastery. It's meaningful, inspiring. Even though from there, that was a place where uh, I met one of the, uh, the Christian uh, priests. And he was a chaplain at Christchurch Grammar School, just you know, down the road from Cottesloe. And he said, look, you really give good talks. You know, sometimes at this school we get really boring talks. Can you please come to our school and give a talk for the assembly? And of course, I, I had enough time, I went there. And that was a time when the, the chaplain, Frank Sheehan, and the principal at the time, and me, we had to wait outside the main assembly hall. I don't know if you've been there, but it's a beautiful property. It's got these wonderful views over the Swan River. And anyway, we waited outside until all the children were settled. And then we walked in. And a principal, you know, Frank Sheen wouldn't say this to me because, you know, he knows me. He said, you're a Buddhist, this is a Christian school. There's a little statue of Jesus in there. We're going to bow our heads to Jesus. But you don't need to do that, you're a Buddhist. And we never ask a Buddhist to bow to Jesus. And that's what I said. I love overreacting somewhere for good reason. I said, I demand my right to bow to your statue of Jesus. You can't stop me. And of course, the prince were, what? And then so Frank said, it was always like this. <laughs> and so we went in. I said, the reason why, I'm going to bow to what I see in that statue, not what I disagree with. I'm going to bow to what I see is worthwhile in that statue. And I said, that's what I do whenever I see a Buddha statue. Bow three times to virtue, peace, and I do compassion, kindness, because I love those things. I live my life devoted to virtuous conduct. I'm a monk, I've been a good monk for 48 years now, and that trustworthiness, not telling lies, you know, even being celibate. You know, it's, why be celibate? It's because sometimes you can see, I know I was heterosexual before, and you can see a beautiful girl comes up, you don't see the femininity in her, you see the humanity in her instead, as a monk. You step aside from that idea of getting a relationship based on different gender, or these days, same gender. The gender doesn't have any part in it. You know, if you've been a monk, you have a different perspective on life, which I very value. And so it's pretty easy to be celibate after all these years. And also just the, the peace. You know, what is really lovely sometimes, just now I just paused. In a room with so many people, 
and you're all silence. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Every time you see silence, please uh, make sure that door gets oiled. Crowd, as I was saying, so no trouble at all. <laughs> the silence is something which I love to worship, and of course, kindness. When any of you, when I see you do a really kind act, that's just so gorgeous. And I say, the world is a beautiful place. How many of you look at the news, read newspapers, look on the internet, and see all the terrible things which politicians, which people in power, which people anywhere do to one another? But I just look for the kindness, the compassion, the care which people give to one another. You can see it here. And I really venerate that. That's what I love bowing down to. Any act of kindness which you do. So as a young man, you started to see just, you know, in the spirituality, there's a way of looking at it, which is uplifting, inspiring, meaningful, makes for a better community, a better uh, society, a better world. Don't you want to be part of that? A lot of times, as a young man, we were protesting for a better world. Get rid of the government, get rid of war, get rid of nuclear missiles. Human beings are far more dangerous than nuclear missiles. You meet those every day. The missiles are in bunkers, usually. But human beings, we could create so much better world by being kinder to one another, more forgiving, more compassionate. And it's not just to other beings, it's to ourselves as well. This is one of the reasons why people can be so harsh judging themselves. And when I started becoming interested in Buddhism, that was absent. You're never told to look at yourself like miserable dust or like a worthless garbage. We just don't have those words. So how many times, Venerable Sumita is with me today, how many times have I called you worthless garbage? <laughs> never, thank you. You don't use rotten words like that. Because <laughs> you make a much better community when you're kind. And sometimes I just go out of the way, people say I'm stupid, I don't really know, but I think I know more than they think. When I praise people, thank you for being here, thank you for coming. Thank you for just giving me that, um, uh, was it cake today? which made me sick. <laughs> but thank you for giving it to me, it's so kind of you. <laughs> so whatever it is, that, that just makes a life much more interesting and beautiful. Now that is basically where I started. Is that just right view? I suppose it is, but it's not the full right view of 
no, anicca dukkha anatta, no, suffering, impermanence, non-self, that gets you no know, deeper into the path. Or is it just morality, is it just generosity? Sometimes they all seem to be the same. Wherever you start, where it's got meaning, that's what you start with and see where it leads. And for me, I must admit, it started with meditation. Because when I, I learned about meditation, they said that this is a way to get into enlightenment. I said, oh yeah, why not? But, as soon as you started training your mind, it was like you became more aware. The mindfulness became stronger. When your mindfulness becomes stronger, it had so many wonderful benefits. And the teacher said, look, if you take some drugs or alcohol, it stuffs up your mind, which was true. I'd never taken any drugs, but I used to take alcohol. And now that stuffed up your head. It made no sense at all. You know, sometimes people criticize me for just being too honest. But you know, every time you go to a party, and you know, when I was a young man, not as a monk, you don't go to parties as monks, except Ajahn Brahm's party, which you know, is alcohol-free. That's for New Year's Eve, by the way. <laughs> but as a young man, you used to go to parties, and if you had too much alcohol, you find a nice girlfriend there, and then you know you go into a corner with her and you know do what young men and young women do in a corner during a party. I couldn't enjoy it because I wasn't really aware. The best part of the party I always missed. And that's how I sometimes I thought that this is ridiculous. What are you doing it like that for? So I remember telling my friends I gave up alcohol as a student. Even one of my cousins, who knew me very well, said, you won't last. You know, and I, I, I did a bet with him, a wager, one pound. That's all worth a lot of money in those days. That I could last over one year of being sober, not taking any alcohol. That's, that's over about 60 years ago now. He still hasn't paid up. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't need, you don't need to do these things for money. You enjoy it. And that was weird, because I was always thought almost a brainwashed when I was young. If you want to have a good time, then just break all these rules. You know, go and get drunk, take drugs. You know, have one, two, three girlfriends if you can afford them. But just don't tell each other. Don't tell them. <laughs> but that's what I was brainwash is having a good time. But then when you are more aware, you think, this is ridiculous, this is not right. I didn't want to hurt you know, a nice girlfriend. Why would you do that? Why would you go and get drunk? Why would you tell a lie to people you trust, who trust you? And honestly, even these days, you know, when I give like these five precepts, not to liberally kill a living being, the one living being which I killed once was this mouse. And I set the trap for it. And when that mouse was dead, I took the trap. It's because my mother, my father died. My mother, you know, was terrified of mice. And I got this beautiful, I can, I can still remember it, even just visualize it now. 
this really beautiful being, a mouse, you know, had died because of my trap. And I was stroking it. And it felt just so soft and beautiful, it's beautiful fur. And I felt terrible about that. So there's no way I could kill an animal after that. You learned to be kind. I must, I had some good karma as well. Once when I was a young man, for my birthday present, I asked for a fishing rod to catch fish. You know what happened? Good karma. That my father and grandfather took me to this lake and my grandfather showed me how to use a fishing rod. <laughs> he never knew how to use one. He cast it, got caught in a branch of a tree, he yanked it back and broke it. <laughs> I never had a go at all. Thank you, grandfather. I'd always be grateful <laughs> for that. So I never did any fishing, fortunate. But anyway, all those kind of precepts and virtue, it's just like, to me, honestly, it's just common sense. I don't know why anybody would break those virtuous rules. It makes no sense. So, you know, if any of you, you know, feel there's another, you're married and there's another person you kind of like, that really hurts the person that you um, cheat on. And just the pleasure you get is not worth the hurt you give others. Killing another being and stealing, lying, no sense at all. I know that sometimes we get people here we're fighting addictions. The best way to fight an addiction is not to start one in the first place. If that possibly can happen, that's a wonderful thing to do. So that is being a good person. And a good person is being happy. Look, I have been keeping these precepts for so many years. Do I look just a crazy guy, not enjoying myself, not having any happiness in this world? because I don't sort of break precepts. Come on, Ajahn Brahm, enjoy yourself, go to the pub. I am enjoying myself, much more than if I go to a pub. Although I must admit that some years ago I did walk into a pub in Pinjara. It was, <laughs> I think the Lions Club invited me to give a talk there. And they said it's in the back room of the pub. And I asked, is there any back entrance? No. You have to go through the front door, right past the bar. And I thought, I'm in trouble. What can I do? So what I did, I remember this. I said, well, there's no choice. I put my head down and just went. And I thought, I was almost there to where the door is, where they're having the meeting. And then suddenly, someone grabbed my shoulder. Blah! Come and have a beer. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'll take an orange juice inside. So I got away with that, but it's pretty scary. But look, it's, you know, no bad intention said, but nevertheless, you know, sometimes oh, this anecdote comes up. Please excuse me for telling you it. You know, once I used to go and teach in Bunbury Prison, 
and that was like an evening session. And during the, uh, that's right, during the afternoon, I had a free afternoon. We used to go down in the Australia and arrive just after lunch. And so I was sitting on Bunbury Beach. No one was there. Nice quiet afternoon. So I just sat there and closed my eyes and went into meditation for a couple of hours. You know, I'm a mug, I can meditate for long. Beautiful meditation. But then, coming out of the meditation, I opened my eyes. No exaggeration. Sitting on my left was this 17 year old girl, a blonde, beautiful, in a bikini. <laughs> Sitting on my right <laughs> was a brunette girl, 17 years of age, in another bikini. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> I was a monk. I'm glad no one had a camera. I was totally innocent. I'd just been in meditation for a couple of hours. And I never realized that that day was the last day of the year 12 exams. And the school was just on the opposite side of the road, Bunbury High School or something. They just finished their year 12 exams, the last exams for school. And so afterwards, they all just went into their you know, bathers, they went to go and have a swim and celebrate. And then these two girls, they saw this, this monk, me, sitting there so still and so peaceful, not even moving, never even noticed I was sitting, they came and sat next to me. They were just waiting there for me to come out of meditation so they could ask some questions on Buddhism and meditation. They were impressed. I wasn't impressed, I was scared. <laughs> What if someone takes a photograph? Ah! <laughs> oh, stupid. But then I answered a few questions. They said, it's time for me to go now. And they let me go, thank goodness. <laughs> Some of the stories of being a monk. But nevertheless, acts of kindness and generosity always impress me. So it's not a thing that has to be done. It's part of spirituality. I don't care who you are, whatever religion you are. It's nice to be kind. It's nice to be generous. It's nice to be this trustworthy, virtuous. You have so much happiness and fun out of this. It's nice to let go of all this guilt business. I don't know what you may have worrying you from your past. If you really trust me, I'd like to get out of my so-called holy water and bless you, you can let it all go. All your past is free, I forgive you. Can I do that? If you think I can, just come up here. <laughs> of course, there's only one person in this world can forgive you, and that's you. That's you. No one else. All I can do is to encourage you. Why not? This is how you learn and grow, acknowledging faults, learning about them. Why do you do that? Why? And then making sure you're safe next time. All the actions of body, speech and mind are how we learn. If we can only just 
acknowledge them, admit them, see them clearly, without this terrible thing of like guilt or shame, sort of getting involved. Have ever I been ashamed? One occasion, our first temple. People like stories like this. What's that jumper I'm going to say now? It was ashamed. Oh no, actually, this other one is much better. Other story. This is, I've got to tell the first one, so I'm not ashamed of telling the story of being ashamed. <laughs> first story, just loading up an old Volkswagen bus when we first started Serpentine Monastery. We were in Magnolia Street, number four Magnolia Street in North Perth. And I was a very hard worker in those days, loading everything up. And this neighbor's daughter came out, maybe about, I don't know, what age, 12, 13. And she put her hands on her hip and looked at me, trying to look totally disgusted. And she said to me, you're dressed like a girl. That's sick. <laughs> I can't really sort of repeat how she said it. She really tried you know, to look really disgusted. And I didn't want to diminish her. I just couldn't stop it. I just burst out laughing. <laughs> One of the funniest things I've seen. She got really upset at that. But anyway, the other thing was story. I think many of you haven't heard this. You know that many years ago there were some like spiritual leaders you know weren't being truthful and had like girlfriends and mistresses even some monks please excuse me even over in Thailand and so one day sitting here I remember I was sitting here I started my talk saying that I'm a monk you know honesty is very important to me. So I want to do my own confession to you now. And I said, and I put my head down, some years ago, I said, I spent some of the happiest moments of my life in the loving arms of another man's wife. We kissed, we hugged, we loved each other. Great, you, have to, you haven't heard this, great. <laughs> <laughs> I spent some of the most wonderful times of my life in the loving arms of another man's wife. Some people almost were out the door. They think, oh no, not Ajahn Brahm. And I said, that woman was my father's wife. She was my mum. <laughs> I spent some of the most wonderful times of my life in the loving arms of another man's wife, my mother. <laughs> and the reason I told things like that is how often do we judge when we haven't got all the information and we judge so unfairly, just get it wrong. <laughs> and I mentioned that because I'm a good monk, I haven't done any scallywaggery uh, since I was ordained. So anyway, that was a nice little story about shame. Be honest, upfront. Actually, I was nothing to really hide. And when you do stuff like that, it's something which I loved in Buddhism. Right? Wisdom, kindness, and I think hopefully you can relate to some of those stories. 
So how do, what is a spiritual path? Sometimes from honesty. That's where you can start. And after honesty, just, um, well it's the same, always being free to ask questions. I never trust any teacher who just does not answer the question. I know sometimes after the talks, there's so many questions, and I do really try to answer them the best I possibly can. Sometimes there's not enough time to answer them all, when I feel a bit disappointed, or if I'm too tired and I don't answer it really deeply enough to what you require. But I will never, hopefully, deny you the opportunity to ask a question. And that's one of the things which I admire. If it's truth, you can stand any amount of questioning. So that's a type of spirituality, religion, in Buddhism, whatever it is, have the opportunity to ask the deepest of questions and get reasonable answers the best you possibly can. You know, honesty, kindness, that's what I think is a start of spirituality. You take that into your life. I don't know what your life is, but it will usually be much more successful if you follow those principles. Being kind to yourself as well. Forgive, you know, whatever you've done. Learn from it and grow. And learn how to forgive others. They were trying to do their best. Sometimes they didn't know really what they were doing. But most human beings, are good. And I've seen people in jail who've done terrible things in their life. But underneath all of that, there's a kindness there which is impressive. And lastly, just that make, gives rise to peace in your life. Solving so many obstacles in your life. So you can enjoy the sunset if you see it. You can walk outside and see the full moon which was there a few days ago, over in the forest. Or even on Wednesday night, just walking up, giving a talk at Bodhinyana, and looking up into the clear sky at night and seeing all those beautiful stars up there. Because I had nothing to worry me. You can enjoy it to the max. And that's what I wish for you. That's why we teach. Thank you for listening. <laughs> okay. Okay. Questions from anyone here? Or then questions from the internet, which I hope is working today. Eddie's got a question? Okay. No. I'm sure you have one, but maybe later on. <laughs> oh, Ajahn Brahm, very interesting talk, you know. Okay. Thank you. So this question of mine is broken into two, two parts. Okay. It's re regarding karma like in your talk. Okay, yeah. Yeah. You talk about um, kindness, generosity, and the good acts. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, these are acts of giving, isn't it? You know, not yeah. kindness. Yeah. By doing this, you lower our false uh, ego and we yeah. reach out, you know. Indeed. So does this lessen our negative karma? Yes. Any act of kindness and goodness is a little simile of the Buddha 
like putting salt in a glass of water, mm. it makes it, makes it undrinkable. Mm. Putting salt in a swimming pool, you can hardly taste it. Mm. You dilute the bad karma. Mm. But better than diluting it, it's just abolishing it totally. Mm. You let go of the bad karma. The second part, Ajahn Brahm, related to the first one here. Say, for example, we have a problem now, no? like yes. sickness, for example, like cancer or anything, what yeah. I think, yeah. So, like, uh, so in, in having this problem, we're trying to seek an answer, isn't it? Okay? Yeah. So if you can refer to the, like Buddhist sense, no, a previous karma, yeah. conditioning our present thing, okay? Yeah. So we try to, to change our negative things, no? okay? Indeed. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then how the past conditions the present, and if you change the present to, 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 to something good, okay, it conditions the future too. Yeah. Like the problem in few few years, it could improve, it could, you know. Improve. Did you see what I mean? Yeah, I see what you mean, uh -huh. but also any past karma to create some, say, a tumour in your body or something, some cancer. Mm. You might say that, but there's so much to learn from that. One thing which I, I think I told this last week, one thing I learned from going to the cancer groups for the last 30 years or so, how many of those people who had cancer said that was the best thing which ever happened to them? I can't say that because I haven't had cancer. They said that, and what do you mean by that? It's a lot of suffering and fear. You came so close to dying. They said they learned so much. And that's the point, whatever the past gave you, you know, in this life, you know, and this is the problem, how much you can learn from that. Mm. And after a while, it's worth it. Mm. This is what other people say. So it's not a punishment. Mm. It's this great opportunity to grow spiritually. Mm. You learn so much. And people think, Arjun Bhav, you don't know what you're talking about. This is from other people's experiences. You know, all the stuff, you know, like your mother dying. How much you learn from your mum? Be wonderful if she was still alive, but she's gone. Mm. Thank you, mum. Mm. Thank you, life. All the difficulties you've faced in your life, all the problems, the terrible things which have happened to you. After a while, if you can say to all of those, thank you. You learn so much. Then you understand why bad things sometimes happen to good people. <coughs> you can grow so much from that. Anyway, I've got a couple of questions here. Could you please explain what you meant when you said it's not the sound disturbs you, it's you who disturb the sound? That's an Ajahn Chah saying. What it really means is Sound is part of nature. You can't stop it. You can't control it. You can't shoot with a gun and a bullet every person who snores during the meditation in this room. <laughs> or you can't just stop coughing. That's part of having a throat. Sometimes you will cough. So what it means is when noise happens, it just happens. And that means you don't disturb the noise, then the noise doesn't disturb you. 
often say during retreats, people complain that somebody in their room or in their cottage bangs the door. Come on. How long does the sound of a banging door last? Not even a second. How long does it reverberate in your brain, sometimes all night? That means you've been disturbing the sound. Sound's gone a long time ago, but you're still disturbing it. The next one. How does one, as a lay Buddhist, follow the middle path when it comes to finding a balance between spiritual progress and worldly success? You don't have to find a balance. Put the two of them together. Worldly success? I'm very successful in this world. Have a look at me. I've got a lovely city residence and I've got a lovely uh, country estate. <laughs> I don't have to, uh, for my health insurance, often if I get sick, there's so many doctors who would grab me to do tests on me and make sure I get better. So worldly, I'm pretty successful. Don't have any worries about health insurance, no worries about accommodation, no worries at all. That's called worldly success. And it's also spiritual progress. Honestly, they go together. They always will. But when you think the worldly success means power rather than sharing responsibility, it doesn't mean personal power. We all need to share. We're stronger together than we can ever be by ourselves. That's one of the reasons why we have communities in monasteries, not just one guru. That's why we have committees rather than, <laughs> rather than a, like a boss. And that's what it should be like even in politics as well just a community of people kind of running the country. And I always think, why does, it, why does the Australian Prime Minister have to be Australian? Why can't we get someone you know, from another country who's not doing anything? You know, like good example is like Jacinda Ardern. She's unemployed now. <laughs> and be great you know, if she doesn't want to be the premier of Western Australia or whatever. She'd be a very good person to become the, the president of the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. <laughs> Can we amend the constitution? <laughs> whatever. I don't know. But anyway, just I always like thinking outside the box. During meditation, once stillness has been cultivated, how is the mind directed towards wisdom? You don't direct anything, you're still. Once stillness is there, if it's real stillness, you can't move. So you go to such deep states of stillness. The result of stillness is that things vanish. And that's really beautiful. If you're sitting still, really still, you can't feel your body. 
It goes by my body. I don't ever think that that's scary. I don't know what age you are, but everybody has aches and pains somewhere. And when you're really still, you can't feel cold or heat, no tummy ache, no hunger, nothing. You just go into a nice peaceful mind state, into the sixth sense. What, where wisdom comes from is afterwards when you come out of those meditations, you're so energized, so clear. You look back upon those experiences and you can understand them, understand what freedom really is. So wisdom, you can't avoid it. And that's one of the lovely things about how the Buddha taught. It's automatic. It's one of the suttas. The first time I saw it was a, a translation by Bhikkhu Bodhi, and he gave it the title. It's a beautiful title. Enlightenment is a natural process. You've got no, no choice, it just happens. Like getting old, getting sick, dying. It's natural, you can't avoid it. It just happens. Like enlightenment. Enlightenment's much more pleasurable. Number, last, next question. Should you be kind to someone who keeps upsetting you? Yes. <laughs> so how can you do that? And I must admit, the Chinese saying is the one which I love following. Like to love the tiger, but at a distance. So if someone's irritating you, still be kind to them, but at a distance, in another country if you can. <laughs> but just be kind to them. And next thing, it's not that they're upsetting you, you're upsetting the relationship. There will always be people who don't do what you like, who do things differently, who are sometimes crazy. But you don't need to be upset at them. Just think they're a bit mad, a bit crazy. And then you don't have to get upset. Why get upset at another person when you did nothing wrong? They did all the bad stuff. Well, I get upset at them. It's their fault, their karma, not yours. So I refuse to get upset because other people did bad karma. <laughs> refuse, okay. Last question here. I have tried my best not to judge others, but sometimes they just come out spontaneously. How to be more mindful of our thoughts? Of course, to train yourself to be mindful of the thoughts by meditating. And after a while, when you see stupid thoughts coming out, you say, well, why do I want to do that for? Another way, if you have really bad thoughts, and this was um, one of the monks I grew up with, and he was a very good monk in so many different ways. In fact, this monk, he had the best command of language that we've ever seen in Thai language and uh, the Northeast Thai language, you know, Isan language. He was so incredibly fluent. So much so that you know, when one of the popes came to visit Thailand, he was a monk who was selected to be the translator for the pope. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, English into Thai, Thai into English. And even one of the princesses, she's still alive, that Princess Sirindor, she said it was the most amazing. She could shut her eyes and think, this is not a Western, he was American. He spoke absolutely fluent Thai and Northeast um, language. But he did have a lot of lust, a lot of you know, thoughts in that area. So I remember him going to see Ajahn Chah, please help, I love being a monk, but I get all these you know, thoughts in my head. And Ajahn Chah said, very easy to fix up. Next time you give a talk to the lay people who feed you, tell them not just Dhamma, tell them what you've been thinking all the time. Poor <laughs> <laughs> Ajahn Chah sometimes was kind of, I think, mean. <laughs> but he never did, which was a shame. So that's one thing. How to be more mindful of your thoughts. Tell other people out loud what you're thinking. <laughs> that was to stop them, those thoughts. Anyway, that was the, the last question there. Any questions from the audience? How to be actually more mindful of the thoughts is first of all, don't be afraid of them. Be kind to them. In other words, they're just human beings, you're not perfect, so those thoughts will come up. And when you're kind to, to them, you acknowledge them, it takes away their power. When you're upset at them, angry to them, you give them force and power, and then they will keep bothering you. Okay, any questions from the floor? Yes, Ajahn Brahm, uh, what's the title of your talk tonight, please? Uh, AV would like to know. The title of my talk is... Uh, <laughs> any suggestions? No? Okay. Suffering at the end of suffering. The end of suffering. No, it's just about the, the beginnings of the spiritual path. This is my life. This is my life. <laughs> <laughs> that used to be a TV program, which I saw as a kid. Ajahn Brahm, this is your life. <laughs> How many people are as old as me? Eamon Andrews, I think that was. Remember that? No, maybe not as old as me. Anyway, that was English TV a long time ago. Okay, this is just like spirit, just style of spirituality. Okay, if you want. Okay, you can change it later if you wish. I don't mind. Okay, so let's. We're going to bow three times to Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and then uh, we can all go home or stay here, whatever you need to do. And thank you for coming. I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs>